Hi, it's Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery. This episode is sponsored by PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association. PDMA is a global community of professional members whose skills, expertise, and experience power the most recognized and respected innovative companies in the world. PDMA is also the longest running professional association for product managers, leaders, and innovators, people like us, having started in 1976. I've enjoyed being a member of PDMA for more than a decade, finding their resources and network very valuable. Learn more about them at pdma.org. And PDMA has invited me to their conference, which is taking place right now in Orlando, Florida. You're listening to this later. But I'm here to interview some of their outstanding speakers. And this speaker spoke about the topic, the key to successful VOC and Agile teams. Agile teams need to know what they're developing. And VOC is a tool for understanding what customers need. However, traditional VOC doesn't meld well sometimes with development that's accomplished in a series of sprints, right, or kind of approach to Agile. And we're going to discuss how to get more benefits from VOC in Agile teams. With us is Kristen Corrigan. Kristen is a principal and co-owner of Applied Marketing Science, a Boston-based marketing research consultancy that helps companies develop better products and services through harnessing the power of customer insights. And if Applied Marketing Science sounds familiar, AMS, it's because we've had some great guests from them before, including Jerry Katz, one of the people talking about VOC and the techniques. So if you want to find those episodes, just go back in the search for uh, Jerry. He's been on a couple times. Kristen specializes in helping companies understand stated and latent customer needs through in-depth interviewing and ethnographic observation. She also trains companies to create and implement their own in-house voice of the customer programs. As always, if you want to find a written summary of what we discuss, including a one-page action guide for the key takeaways that Kristen will share with us, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 413. Kristen, thanks for joining us for this unusually live interview that we're doing together in person. Thanks so much for having me, Chad. Happy to be on. I really, because of my association with Jerry, I met Jerry at a conference many years ago through PDMA and got to know his works. I think we are both contributors to the what was it called? The Toolbook 3 for product managers. And we both had written the chapter. We were part of some signing party. That's how I met Jerry the first time. A lot of respect for what the organization does. Th this foundation of using voice of the customer kind of research. C can you just start us off with a description of that? Because frankly, it means different things to different people. Yeah, Chad, that's a really good question. I think over the years, voice of customer has taken on many definitions to organizations, right? I think there is a temptation to think of voice of customer as any type of customer data, right? The customer satisfaction survey that you might get at the bottom of your receipt or anything at all from customers. But when we think about voice of the customer in a more systematic sense and fueling product development and innovation, what we're thinking about is an in-depth understanding of customer needs, right? And what the customer is really trying to accomplish the job to be done. What are the problems that our customers are looking to solve? And not only that, but what are the things that are so important to them that the market isn't currently delivering on? That's what we mean by VOC. Okay. So those that task or objective, what makes the customer feel like they got their job done, what they're trying to accomplish? Exactly. And understanding that beyond the surface, right? Because anybody can ask a customer, so what do you want? But if you do that, the answer is probably going to be something that isn't all that creative 
and doesn't get beyond the obvious. So effective VOC is really understanding your customers in an in-depth way and getting beyond the obvious. Yeah, you talked about those latent needs, right? So we can go find a customer and say, hey, that product you're using, how could we make it better for you? Which is such a profoundly bad question. But how could we make that better for you? And they'll give us some information out of their experience, which actually is probably a reasonable starting point to their information, but probably might not uncover the needs that haven't really come up for them in thinking about how they get the process done. Like the classic example that you and I have both seen, if we go observe someone do their task in their office, and maybe it's a computer software, like an accounting program, let's say, you know, at some point they grab a post-it note, they write down a number on the post-it note, they stick it up on the monitor. A couple of minutes later, they're somewhere else and they enter that number, right, up for the post-it note. And you go, oh, that looks like something we might be able to prove in the product so they don't have to do that. That also might be something that they never even think about bringing up, right, the, whatever the task is they're trying to accomplish. So VOC is going deeper to really understand what they, is want, what they do want to accomplish and those latent needs. Let's talk about this in the context of Agile teams. And when I think Agile or Agile, however you want to pronounce it, I'm usually thinking Scrum specifically, right? That's the methodology we most see today. And we're doing work in these time boxes. And so every two weeks we do things. And recently even had a conversation with one company I'm helping. And they talked about, we try to do some just customer discovery upfront, what they need. And then we're doing development in the teams through time box sprints, but not necessarily going back and keeping up with the customer. And maybe we did actually do the best job in the beginning with discovery, or we learned something new and it's changed a little bit, but we haven't really put that through the backlog in a way the team can understand it. Can you just talk about the, this friction that happens a little bit with via these time box sprints? Yes, yeah, and there certainly is a friction there. So if you look at systematic voice of customer, we're talking about a process of uncovering a complete set of customer needs that are prioritized by customers. This process, this exploratory process, ideally happens as early as possible in the StageGate process, but it takes months and months to accomplish. And that is in direct conflict with agile teams having to work on tight timeframes and constantly iterating, right? And so the reality of the situation is these agile teams that might already have a product concept or prototype still need customer insights. So how can we infuse VOC into those moments and into that part of the stage gate process where there's already a concept to get meaningful customer insights? And the whole aim, Chad, is to be able to fail quickly, right? So if you have something that really isn't meeting the mark, how can we change it? Or do we need to completely go back to the drawing board and rethink it? Yeah. And one of the reasons why we have Agile to start with is we recognize if we're doing all the planning up front, the traditional waterfall predictive approach, we learn as we go on, right? And, and we start our developing and we might recognize we misunderstood a requirement, we missed some things. And Agile gives us a way to kind of make that management easier, right? We do the most important things off the top of the backlog list. Um, but we're supposed to have a customer involved in the loop all the time with us. And that sometimes that's just not practical. We're going to talk about VOC as a tool to help with this then. And in your talk, you talked about three pillars right, about structuring this. Can you just walk us through that? Sure, I'm happy to. I think the first thing to keep in mind when we think about the three pillars is planning, right? And by planning, I mean two things. Number one, what are the types of customers or who are the types of customers that we really need to get feedback from? 
When you look at any given product or service, there's a number of different customer segments that it could potentially resonate with. So the first part of planning is answering this question, who do I need feedback from or who is the customer? The second piece of planning is really figuring out what it is you're going to have customers react to. And that's what I call a minimally viable stimulus. And it's minimally viable because we want something that's really easy to change, right? We talk about prioritizing that backlog. We don't want to be too attached to a fully developed prototype, for example. So who are you going to talk to and what are you going to show them? So that's pillar one. Pillar two is... I just want to go back to that, that, your MVS, right? The minimum viable stimulus. You said not to be too attached to a prototype. For a lot of us, my background is engineering, we get attached to the product. And sometimes I've seen when we're doing customer discovery kind of thing, we'll even have a product person say, oh, customer, you don't understand, right? That's not really the problem. Let me tell you what the problem is. And we're not really listening (laughs) carefully to what's actually going on. And you're talking about not just getting too attached to the product, not get too attached to the prototype because we're trying to understand what the customer actually needs, what they're trying to accomplish. Exactly. Because I find the teams that get too attached to their prototype, exactly as you say, they don't want to make any changes and they don't have that mentality of listening and being open to adjustments, right? So showing the customer something that's minimally viable gets beyond that. And what does that look like? It could be a number of different things. Oftentimes, my clients will have several PowerPoint slides that are depicting the concept in words or some small graphics. Other times, it's a very rough prototype that we can easily change as customers are giving us feedback. It can also be drawings. It can be short videos as well. The key is we want the customer to understand what the potential product could be so that we can get a reaction from them. Okay, so we got the planning one, really understanding who the customer is specifically and the minimal viable stimulus. That's our first pillar. That's our first pillar. And our second pillar is then asking the right questions to get beyond the obvious and to get the information that we need. For example, if we have a minimally viable stimulus and we ask the customer simply, would you purchase this product and get a yes or no answer, That does nothing for the development or the optimization of the product. What we want to do with our questioning is understand the appeal of the concept or the prototype overall and why or why not. Additionally, we want to dig deeper to understand the individual features of the concept or prototype. So what's most appealing and what's least appealing about it? and understand what jobs that's accomplishing for our customers. A last step of getting beyond the obvious is something that people often skip. And this is mapping back to customer needs, right? So ideally, there's been some exploratory VOC done ahead of the development of the prototype. Let me tell you, in reality, that doesn't always happen. But we want to make sure that we're mapping back to customer needs to understand, listen, I have this prototype. Is it accomplishing what you need it to do? What else could it potentially do? Did we miss anything big? So so some good details in there for asking the right questions. Beyond just the obvious, 
right? So trying to understand why or why not there are certain things that appeal to them, don't appeal to them. Is there an example or scenario you can take us through? Like I, I know, as I've talked to other, maybe not VOC practitioners specifically, but customer discovery people, definitely start with a fact situation. What led you to this need or what problem is it you've tried to solve, how you try to solve it in the back? They're trying to get a little bit of history about what they've done before. And obviously, you're working with a client who's trying to get this done, and they have some understanding of the customer, what they want to do. We're going to do some work together to figure out the questions to ask ahead of time. But are there some general questions that you like? Sure. Yeah, that is that is a great question. And I'm usually the one asking the question, so it's nice to be on the other side of things for once. But I love to ask customers to tell me stories. I find that's really a great way to organically get at the needs that may not be top of mind for them. So what that looks like is having them tell me about the last time they used a product or experienced a service. An example I can think of is a few years back, I was consulting with a company that manufactures accessories for a feeding pump. So these are pumps that provide you with nutrition when you can't consume food traditionally. And they were in the process of developing a new bag and set of lines for these pumps. And what we did in this case is we started with an open-ended exploration of how the patients and caregivers were actually interacting with the pumps, which revealed a lot of interesting nuances about how the pumps were being loaded and actually what the experience was like for the people receiving the nutrition. And one of the biggest insights that we gained from that particular study was that the prototype itself had a bag that the food was stored in that was extremely crunchy. And when people described the experience of using one of these devices out in public, they really talked about how self-conscious they were and how they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. So was that something that they designed to when they made their prototype? Absolutely not. But through talking with customers and understanding their emotions and the story around this product, we were able to really advise them on this prototype that they ended up completely changing. Yeah. Uh, Understanding that customer experience at a different level, right? Exactly. My dream job out of school, which did not realize other things happened, but I thought I wanted to go work on MRI machines. The area was electromagnetics. It's a good fit as an engineer. That never happened, but I like that story about, I, I had an MRI that this last couple of years, first time. When you talk to people with MRIs, it's this big, scary tube to get in. And now you talk to kids, right? You talk to little kids about getting into this big, scary tube. And it's just a very, it's not a great environment. And the things that you can learn and that they figured out to make it a better experience for kids, not changing the machine in any way except just making the experience better. And that's what you're getting to is asking questions that helps to understand the customer's experience with the product and what is lacking what, and what they really like and why. And then what is it and why did they not, what, what's not appealing about it? And the crunchy bag is a great example of that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think particularly when you're working with a prototype or a concept, there's a tendency to think that the needs are going to be functional, that they're going to be about the active actually using the product. But oftentimes, when we hear these stories from customers, the needs are emotional and they're experiential. And that's really where the richness of VOC comes into play and where the real benefit lies. So beyond really just exploring the concept, it's a general mapping back to emotions and needs and jobs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And again, wired as an engineer, it's easy to think about those functional needs. 
but I think fundamentally, most of us make decisions on emotion first, and then we try to, you know, our brains backfill a little bit of logic. Do I want the Mercedes because it's such a better performing, easier to take care of car? Not easier to take care of, maybe better performing. Or would, 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 I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but a lower priced car exactly. <laughs> satisfy? Exactly. So there's some of the needs that are, that are appealing to me. Okay, so we've talked about planning as a pillar, the right questions that get to what they're trying to accomplish, not the simple, would you buy this? How much would you pay? Back to the five whys, really try to understand deeply, why are they thinking something about this? What's our third pillar? The third pillar is really about prioritization, right? So agile teams, they have a backlog of features or specs that they're managing towards in their efforts. And we want to make sure that we're keeping that in mind through our voice of the customer process. As we're talking to customers, which typically happens in sets of five to 10 interviews, Chad, we want to be iterating the concept or prototype as often as we need to. And that involves reprioritizing things, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of going back and changing the way that we talk about a particular aspect of the product or removing a feature and seeing what customers think then. Okay, so we can talk about five to 10 interviews. So now this might get us into the actual pace of the development team, right? Doing sprints. Where are these? It sounds like we're certainly doing some work up front, right? As part of our initial planning and we're planning for the project and we're having some interactions with the customers. Are those five to 10 all up there? Or are they spread out as part of sprint planning as well? The way that I typically use the voice of customer interviews in Agile process is to have the five to 10 interviews happen once the minimally viable prototype or stimulus is created. And it's not a matter of waiting until those five or 10 interviews are done to make changes but it's making adjustments to the backlog or to the concept as we need as those interviews are happening. Now, I often get the question, how do I know if I need to add another round of five or 10? And you'll know this by understanding if you have consensus among key segments. And what that looks like is hearing the same thing from customers over and over again and hearing consistent feedback. If you're hearing varied feedback from your five interviews, that's a signal that you need to do more and you need to do some deeper exploration to make sure that you've talked to enough people to make sure that you really have something. Yeah, it might tell us we have more than one market segment we're actually involved with. Maybe we thought we had a segment to target. We're actually figuring out the people we are thinking about they have different buying behavior. They have different psychographics there. They have a different task they're trying to get done. There's different things that are important to them. Yes. And this happens all the time. And sometimes what will happen through the course of these interviews is you'll have a segment that you thought was going to be your primary market to target. And you realize after talking to a few customers that you've actually missed the mark and the opportunity is actually in a different segment. So you may want to be agile in that sense and change the types of customers that you're speaking to or getting feedback from. Okay. On the five to 10 interviews, tell us what this looks like. Who are you talking to? Is this a one-on-one? Is this a small group? What are you doing? Sure. So I'll contrast it to the traditional exploratory VOC where you're talking to on the order of 30 customers and trying to get that exhaustive list of customer needs. That's not what we're doing here. It's needs-focused, but it's needs-focused around a minimally viable stimulus in this case or just something that the customer is reacting to. So what we're doing is... On the outset is we're coming up with what I call screening criteria 
to really profile the different types of customers we want to speak to. So going back to the NRL feeding example I just talked about, we knew that we wanted to speak to patients. We wanted to speak to in-home caregivers, and we also wanted to speak to professional caregivers, nurses that work in professional settings. And so those screening criteria were different depending on what group a customer belonged to. I find that for these voice of customer interviews with agile teams that the one-on-one interview really is best. And the reason for that is you're able to really dig deep with an individual customer to understand their experiences, to hear their stories, and to dig deep to understand their emotions. What I see in a group setting is that sometimes there's some reluctance to do that. And there's also the phenomenon where you have to share airtime, right? So it's less of the customer talking and more of the customer listening to others talk, which is not what we want. I'd just like to understand mechanically a little bit how you're conducting the interviews. And you say one-on-one. I know my personal good practice is I always like to have two interviewers, even if it's one interviewee, because then someone can be asking questions and the other person may be taking notes or vice versa and maybe paying attention to things that the other person messes up, right? So I might pay attention to the language I'm hearing back from the person and maybe my colleague might be paying attention to body language and size and you tilt your head and kind of that sort of thing. Mechanically, how do you like to set up this interview? It's a great question, Chad. I think, you know, before 2020, the majority of these interviews were happening in person, oftentimes because there's something that we physically wanted the customer to feel, to see, to touch, to interact with. Now, increasingly, we're doing these interviews virtually, which is actually great because people are comfortable virtually. I think Nearly all workplaces have adopted hybrid working models where people are just present virtually. So they're comfortable being on camera. They're comfortable talking on camera and being very candid. And frankly, it's a lot easier to set up five to interviews. It really is. Yeah. And I've done this with all ages and segments. And so we do virtual interviews with professional audiences. We also do virtual interviews with consumer audiences as well. And I think most important to have present in in these sessions is a skilled moderator that's going to guide the conversation and, of course, the customer. If possible, I'd agree with you, it's nice to have a second person there taking notes and providing some prompts if the moderator may have missed something. But I do recommend that one person lead the interview. Otherwise, it can be a little overwhelming for respondents and start to feel like an interrogation if it's a two-on-one situation. True, that makes sense. And you did mention when you were doing the one-person, part of that was we often do like the person we're interviewing, the potential customer here, to interact with that MVS thing, whatever it is we have as a prototype for them. I find that so valuable because people, they just think differently, right? You get put something in my hands, I actually start relating to it much differently than seeing screenshots up on a board or something or you even describing it, right? It's a different experience when you physically give me something, even if it's not a functional prototype. Are you ever sending out to customers ahead of time or or how do you deal with this aspect of it? Logistically, it's difficult, Chad, but yes, we are sending out products to customers. Sometimes we do this. In the crunchy bag example that I gave before, that is an example where we did ship the product to customers and they were actually able to touch and feel, in this case, the crunchiness of the bag. So while it does add logistics, getting the product into the hands of your customers can be really powerful. Okay, that's about the prioritization part, the prioritization pillar. I think just doing frequent check-ins with the team to prioritize the features of the concept 
is important because it also informs the types of questions that you'll ask other customers as you continue along with your interview process. So teams shouldn't shy away from changing course and adjusting what they ask about. Remember, these are qualitative conversations. This isn't quantitative testing. That's a different type of research. So it's not like we have to ask every single customer the same exact questions and tally their responses. It's an iterative process, so we shouldn't be afraid to iterate as we're going. And anyone uncomfortable with this notion of, can we really create a new product on five to 10 interviews? Do a, Go to, to productmasterynow.com and search for Jerry Katz. And we talk about VOC and the value of a few number of interviews. And actually the last, I don't think it was the last time, but we've been to PDMA conferences before. We were, I think, both in Orlando in 2019, last time they had one in person before COVID. Yes. And I think it was the one before that, maybe in Chicago, that the CEO of Gatorade spoke on how they turned around the company based on interviews with 12 high school athletes. You can get incredible insights just from getting deeper understanding of what people need to accomplish. Absolutely, Chad. Yeah. And I just, I think when we think about agile teams, again, we know that the product concept is coming more toward the middle of the stage gate process. There's still opportunity to collect VOC then, and it's still very valuable. Okay. That's kind of the last thing I want to ask you about is the just spacing this out. So product team that have a mission to develop new value for the customer. We've done some work to put together an MVS. And now we're going to interact with the customer to get a better understanding of what actually needs to be done. So our feedback from them really becomes the foundation of the requirements, the initial backlog for the sprint team. Now they start working on it, right? And first, second sprint, somewhere along the way, they go, gosh, we have these two different features on our backlog that sound like they could actually be contradictory. We're not quite sure what's going on here and we're missing something. What do we do? <laughs> That's a great question and not uncommon. So when teams are faced with contradictory specs or features, it's great to have customer data to go back to, to read, to say, what did the customer say about this? Do we have anything here? And if you have some pieces of information, one possibility is to go back to that same customer and say, listen, we have this and that. Let's talk about it. If you can't do that, Perhaps you need to talk to some other customers to understand how they think about this potential interaction and have another checkpoint. Simple, good advice. Go back to the customer. The, we have the data, so we know where this, these needs originated. We can ask for clarification about that and investigate that more or an opportunity to pursue uh, another customer to get another data point. And this is another reason why I love having a transcript of the interviews. So we talked about a note taker and that's great. But having a transcript of the interview in the customer's language, especially for this type of detail, you might not have this from your team members notes. It might be much more nuanced. So having that transcript to go back to helps you to pinpoint that detail that can be super important. So speaking about the transcript, that's such a great tool to bring forward much later to marketing so that they have some language from actual customers. I don't know if that's even part of, of the kind of projects you've been a part of if you help facilitate that. I just find we sometimes there's this gap between what we learn as the product people involved during customer discovery, and it doesn't make it way into the marketing communications. 
Yes, that's a great point, Chad. And yes, keeping the customer language is really critical. I think there's often a temptation for companies to insert their company speak in or translate into their company speak, even as you're getting kind into... Kind of overly complicated, frankly. Exactly. Marketing and value proposition development, it needs to have the language of the customer. I can say as a customer, one of my pet peeves is when I'm on the phone with customer service and they tell me something about the screen that they're on or the system, whatever the name might be. And it means nothing to me as the customer. All I know is that I'm trying to get a refund for my flight or whatever it might be. So just really understanding what matters to the customer, what language they would use, what their experience is like is important. And yeah, the transcript can be a great tool to reference back, be a gut check for things like marketing language and sales language and even on customer service calls. Excellent. Okay, real quick, the MVP question. So we have a MVS, the minimal viable stimulus, right? So something that we, a prototype we can get into the hands that we're going to learn more from, which is the purpose of an MVP itself, right? Something that we think creates some amount of value for the customer that could maybe be our first product launch. I, I personally don't like that positioning of MVP. I think it should be the thing we're learning from, and it may or may not be the first product launch, right? But agile teams are very accustomed usually to this MVP. What have you ran into to, how do you differentiate these two for them? So I view MVP as the next step from MVS and I'm encouraging my teams to look at MVS or the stimulus because it's easier to change, right? And that is the crux of this is that we can't be afraid to go back and say, hey, we got it wrong. We would do a whole lot better if we made these adjustments. I find once we get the P in there, the product, We've already put a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money into it, and it's harder to kill that product if we need to. Yeah, which is, I think that's so spot on. It's part of it is just the language. As soon as we call something a product, there's part of the organization that doesn't want to kill it now because it's a product. And I've heard some people rephrase the MVP as an MVE, the minimal viable experiment that make it sound more purposeful. Hey, we're doing something to learn here. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So the MVS first, right? So that, that minimal kind of description of what we got going on here, ideally something that you know, takes some form that conveys it more realistically to the customer, but not functional at all, right? It's just a, a representation of what might be. And then we're engaging the customer, trying to figure out what they want to get done. So we've done our planning to understand who to go to. We've come up with the questions we want to ask them. And starting with stories is your example, a great place to start. Tell me what the last time you used this product, what that experience was like, kind of walk me through that, maybe that kind of story. Right. And now we're then working on our feature prioritization and using what we learned from the customers to help us prioritize what is most important. And then after we get all this put together, our sprint teams are in good shape. And as they encounter some conflict or lacking information, we can go back to the customers, get clarification, or do new interviews. Yes, great summary, Chad. You got it. This is great information. Thank you so much for helping all the people listening that do have Agile teams or are using Scrum and want to have a better understanding of their customers and apply VOC. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Okay, I forgot to ask Kristen about how we can find out more about her and her resources. So I am now standing in the hallway with her, so it sounds a little bit different. But Kristen, where can people go to find out more about you and what you have available to help us out with Voice of the Customer Research? You can visit our website at www.ams-insights.com. So it's ams-insights.com. Anything else we should know? No, I think that's it. 
And listeners, once again, if you want a written summary of anything that we talked about, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 413. And you'll also find the one-page PDF takeaway of key information that Kristen shared that will help you put into action immediately using VOC in an agile environment. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.